Hi there and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, we've got something out of this world, the environmental impacts of space tourism. With not one, but two commercial space flights having taken off last month, we ask an astrophysicist and an atmospheric scientist, what does a new space age mean for climate change and for the environment here on planet Earth? After that, Mike Moffat shares his regular list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. And of course, the entire program will be infused with an excess of space puns. Buckle your seatbelts. This episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast, is ready for launch. Seven, six, five, four. Command engine start. Two, one. That, of course, is the sound of Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, and his crew taking off for a commercial spaceflight on July 20th. The rocket carried four private citizens 120 kilometers above the Earth, just beyond where the planet's atmosphere ends, for 10 minutes of extremely expensive space tourism. Just a few days earlier, Sir Richard Branson did the same, also shot up to the edge of space in his company's space plane, which will also soon be available for paying passengers. And meanwhile, Elon Musk's SpaceX is preparing for multi-day commercial space trips in orbit, as much as four times farther into space than its competitors. Sir Richard Branson had a point when he said, we're on the brink of a new space age. Whereas the international community has been averaging about 150 orbital and suborbital space launches per year over the past few years, Virgin Galactic now plans on reaching 400 launches per year all on its own. Some experts project we could reach 1,000 space launches per year in the not-too-distant future, a tenfold increase from today. All of this put together, says Swiss investment bank UBS, means that space tourism and commercial space travel could grow into a $20 billion industry by 2030. The question for my next two guests is, what are the environmental impacts of space travel and can we mitigate them as the space tourism industry grows? First, I'm speaking with Dr. Parshati Patel. Dr. Patel is an astrophysicist and science communicator based at the University of Western in London, Ontario. Dr. Patel, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Dr. Patel, first, how excited are you about the dawn of space tourism? Uh, First of all, feel free to call me Parshati. Um, And this is definitely one of those times I'm so grateful that I'm alive in this era because what we are seeing now is I think what would have you know people experience the same kind of feeling when you know the first airplanes kind of you know the airplane industry launched now a similar trend is going to be there for space as well 
it definitely isn't going to happen overnight. It still uh, is going to be a long time before, you know, you and I can, can pay for it and just, yeah. you know, go to the moon and then take a vacation there. Um, but it is definitely going in a direction which is pushing everyone, scientists, engineers, and people who are, you know, visionaries to to think of things in, in a more accessible and environmentally friendly way. Right. And and that's exactly what we're trying to assess today are the environmental impacts of, of this growing uh, industry. Uh, now, space tourism, of course, is a new phenomenon, but we have decades of experience sending astronauts and satellites into space. What do we know then about the environmental impacts of space travel? So if you just look at a rocket launch, just by looking at it, you can, you can guess a lot of the things that are you know, happening at that time, you see that burst of the sound that you hear if you're near, or you can see those, you know, clouds of material coming out of the rockets. That short amount of time of getting to space, uh, you, you're emitting a lot of things um, that are then sitting in the atmosphere. So there is a lot of environmental effects. So you mentioned kind of the emissions uh, from the rocket launch. Uh, we'll circle back on that one. Um, I'm also interested about waste. Is is waste a problem uh, with space travel? We hear sometimes about space junk. I don't know how, how big an issue that actually is. Yeah, so space debris, space junk, uh, you know, orbital debris, um, those are definitely something that we actively think about when we put things in space, you know, how is it going to react, let's say, in 10 years when it's not going to be active, right? We currently have around 3,400 active satellites in, in space, but at the same time, we have around a little bit over 3,100 inactive satellites in mm. space. And and typically, a lot of this waste stays up in space, and, and our primary concern is, of course, kind of the environment down here on planet Earth. Um, is there waste that does come back down to Earth, at, you know, in terms of kind of the rockets propelling satellites and astronauts into space? You know, often I think those things get discarded. What happens to that waste? Yeah, so a lot of, so I know like the current new um, industry, what they're really trying to do is trying to make things that are as much reusable as possible. Um, and, but that's, not, that has not been the case uh, for a very long time. And so a lot of this, the material either just sits, you know, um, at the bottom of the ocean, if that's where it falls, um, or sometimes, you know, it's been retrieved uh, really most of the time we're like rebuilding and trying to like, you know, put them back into, um, into space. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're basically using very much still the same technology that we had for a very, very long time. But the fact that, you know, with the newer technology, what we are really trying to do is, um, is bring that idea back that we don't want to do what we have been doing is wasting a lot of our, mm. our resources and trying to make sure that whatever we are, you know, using, we can try and see if we can make use of that again. Yes, and, and, and I, I note that uh, that of you know the three commercial uh, space tourism companies that are emerging right now, uh, Virgin Galactic has kind of a disposable part of their uh, of their rocket, um, mm-hmm. but both Blue Origin and SpaceX, as far as I, I understand are using reusable rockets. That's true. Um, however, both, like all of them, aren't 100% reusable yet. There are still parts of things that we aren't using, which, you know, I think mm-hmm. <laughs> we okay. are trying to make thing, use of things as much as possible, which I think, given the trajectory, it is it is how it's supposed to go. You know, you cannot just 
come up with a new rocket that's going to be like 100% reusable or, you know, that the end of rocket fuel you're going to be using or like 0%, you know, emissions or anything like yeah. that. It does yeah. take a while to, to get to that at that place. And and we are actually going to that place, which is, which is uh, I think, something that's remarkable and something that's achieved, I think, relatively in a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned rocket fuel. Uh, what kind of environmental impact does, does that potentially have? Yeah, so rocket fuel, it's it's very interesting. You know, there are a lot of things depending on the kind of fuel you use, uh, you know, what kinds of uh, leftovers could have carbon, you know, carbon dioxide that is left over, mm-hmm. or you could have, you know, like water vapor, which we know are like big additions to the, the whole climate change aspect that we're thinking of, you know, these two seem to be of the most concern. And and that is something that I know a lot of people are researching on is trying to figure out the, the impact of that on, on our climate. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to speak to one of those researchers next. So thanks for setting that up. Um, I, I want to ask you one last question, Parshati. Um, upon return, and, and this, this has nothing to do with space tourism, but, you know, thinking about what the potential is, what the opportunities are upon returning to Earth after his suborbital space flight last month, Jeff Bezos quipped that there could be a future where the world sends all its polluting industries into outer space, uh, things like cement production and steel production, the things that release tons of emissions that we have a hard time controlling here on Earth, um, send them all to space. Uh, Is that as crazy as it sounds? I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, you know, if if we could help, uh, you know, the environment by doing things up in space, it's a good way to start thinking. However, we don't know how plausible that is given the current situation and scenario we have. Right, right. A a fair answer. Um, It sounds to me like it would be just extraordinarily expensive, but maybe there's a day when we get there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Dr. Patel, thank you for uh, sharing your enthusiasm with us and, and walking us through some of the environmental considerations associated with space tourism. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Parshati Patel from the University of Western. Now, you heard Dr. Patel refer to the fuel used to propel rockets into space. My next guest has done extensive research in this space. If you've read anything about the environmental implications of space tourism recently, chances are it cited her research. Dr. Eloise Marais is an associate professor at University College London. I'm reaching her at her home office in Leicester, England. Dr. Marais, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Now, Dr. Marais, you say that the biggest environmental impact from space tourism is the rocket fuel. What should we know about the rocket fuels being used right now? Yeah, so the the major players in the space tourism industry all use different types of fuel. Um, And so the the composition of the fuel really determines what kinds of chemicals are produced when these uh, combust. And so the the fuel that's used by uh, Jeff Bezos's company is hydrogen and oxygen, whereas the fuel type that's used by uh, Virgin Galactic and by SpaceX is is carbon based. Um, and so carbon based fuel will produce byproducts like carbon dioxide and black carbon or soot, whereas the um, hydrogen based fuel from Blue Origin will produce water vapor. Hmm. So, so three different kinds of rockets, three different technologies using three different kinds of fuels. 
from a climate change perspective, which of these fuels ha- is most problematic, do you, do you believe? Yeah, so the carbon-based fuels that Virgin Galactic and um, SpaceX use will produce uh, carbon dioxide as a byproduct when they combust. And so, of course, carbon dioxide, we know, is a greenhouse gas, and so it contributes to warming. And so that is of particular concern to us. Um, but also these carbon-based fuels can produce black carbon or soot, um, and that can have a, a warming effect on the atmosphere. It's not classified as a greenhouse gas. These are dark particles that are suspended in the atmosphere. Because they're dark, they're capable of, they're very efficient at absorbing um, incoming sunlight and can, as a result, warm the local atmosphere. Hmm. Uh, soot, that, that's something that I'm, I'm more accustomed to hearing about in the context of kind of the the industrial revolution um uh, you know in the 19th century not not futuristic space age how worried uh do we need to be about soot as a pollutant yeah so soot has definitely had a lot of attention as being very very efficient at um warming the atmosphere so it's it's warming effect is is very large um it's something that's produced in quite large quantities from, for example, combusting coal. Um, But coal-fired power plants are regulated in most parts of the world, and so there are um, ways to prevent that soot from being released into the atmosphere. So for for rockets, the the main concern is that when when the soot is released, it's released into multiple layers in the atmosphere. And so we really need to understand it, it, what quantities it's released into these layers in the atmosphere and what can be its effect on um, the, the local atmosphere. Right. And, and so that brings me to, to another point, which is, you know, typically we release pollutants on this planet uh, quite close to the planet. Um, you know, even aviation is releasing pollutants uh, not far off of the surface of the planet. Uh, when we're talking about space tourism, of course, these these vessels, these rockets are are launching into the highest levels and through the top of our atmosphere. How much or or how little do we know about the impacts of air pollutants at those high levels in our atmosphere? Yeah, so we certainly know that there are many chemicals that are produced from these rockets that can deplete ozone in the layer in the atmosphere where it protects us from harmful UV radiation. So this is the the stratospheric ozone layer that is uh, about 10 or so kilometers uh, above us. When these pollutants are released into the upper atmosphere, they tend to persist for two, three years, if not longer, uh, which means that uh, a space tourism industry that is sustained for multiple years would lead to the accumulation of these pollutants. And these pollutants linger for two to three years. How does that compare to how long they would last at lower levels of altitude? It varies from one pollutant to the next, but in a relative sense, they would last lower in the atmosphere for minutes to to hours to days to months. So mm. it's substantially longer when they're released higher up into the atmosphere. Okay, so so the air pollutants at those high levels of the atmosphere aren't necessarily uh, issues from a climate perspective, uh, but from other um, other potential adverse environmental impacts. Um, I want to recognize that uh, you identified both Virgin Galactic and SpaceX as having these problematic carbon-based fuels, at least problematic from a climate perspective. Uh, That leaves Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin uh, company. What's different about the fuel being used by that rocket? Yeah, so they're using uh, hydrogen and oxygen 
um, to propel their rocket into space. And when, when hydrogen and oxygen, um, or when hydrogen combusts, it's going to produce water vapor um, as opposed to producing CO2, which the other two rockets produce. And so water vapor does sound innocuous, but unfortunately, when it is released into the, the stratospheric ozone layer, it can undergo further reactions that contribute to depletion of, of ozone. Mm. Um, it is also a, a greenhouse gas. Um, so close to the surface of the Earth, uh, we have a abundant water vapor that actually behaves as a greenhouse gas, but it's likely that the water vapor that's released closer to the surface of the Earth from these rockets won't make a very large contribution. Uh, yeah, and, and let's talk about the size of the contribution. Obviously, space tourism and space travel are, are quite infrequent activities. I mentioned off the top that there are, you know, ranging from 100 to 150 rocket launches uh, per year, uh, compared to 100,000 flights uh, launching every day um, on this planet. Um, at what stage does space tourism and space travel and, and the pollution being caused by these activities start to register? Yeah, I think that's going to depend on on a lot of factors. I think it's going to depend on how large the space tourism industry will be at full capacity and also the number of rocket launches each of these companies launch each year. Um, because their different rockets have different fuel types, which produce different chemicals. And so what we really need to understand to be able to answer that question is what their offerings will be at full capacity. So far, we only know that Virgin Galactic plans to offer one flight uh, per day. Um, We don't know yet what Blue Origin's offerings will be. And so once we have that kind of information we can run the speculative scenario through a model that can represent these complex processes to be able to assess at what point the space tourism industry could become competitive with something like um, the chemicals that are produced from the the aircraft industry. You know, the, the space tourism industry is is so nascent that, that maybe some of those regulations aren't there yet, uh, similar to the aviation industry. Uh, what rules are there to monitor and contain the environmental impacts of, of space travel? Currently, there are uh, environmental impact assessments that have taken place at the, the launch site. So you could go online and search for the environmental impact assessment for uh, the Blue Origin site, Van Horn in Texas. Mm. Um, but there's Beyond that, there isn't any regulation for the amount of chemicals that are released uh, during the rocket launch. Um, and so, of course, this is of particular concern because, um, an, you know, growth of an unregulated industry can have and has had in the past um, significant impact on the environment. So fuel is, uh, the the fuel being used by these rockets is kind of a key source of, uh, of concern maybe when it comes to uh, the pollution of the space tourism and space travel industry. Um, you mentioned that these three rockets that we're seeing, these three commercial uh, companies that we're seeing emerge in this space are using three different kinds of fuels. Are there other kind of rocket fuel options that that are out there or that could be out there that are, are maybe greener or, or more environmentally benign? I'm, I, I'm not a, a rocket scientist, but I know that there have been um, demonstrations of using biofuel as as rocket fuel. And so the idea behind biofuel is that that's um, from plant material. And so the plants grow, they suck up CO2 while they're growing, and then you burn the, the 
um, fuel that's generated from these plants and that releases CO2. And so um, it sounds like a closed loop in that there's no there's net zero CO2 produced, but unfortunately biofuels are also not strictly renewable. Um, there's you know land that's required to grow the plant material. There are uh, synthetic fertilizers that are required to ensure that it's productive when it grows and then insecticides and pesticides. So, I mean, even if you dig into the, the details of how these kinds of fuels are, are developed and produced, there, there aren't really any strictly renewable or, or clean um, types of fuel. Hmm. Uh, but maybe cleaner. Um, so, so no silver bullet for, uh, for eliminating pollution from the space tourism and space travel industry, but uh, but maybe some fuels uh, that uh, that release fewer pollutants than others. Dr. Marais, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was uh, a fascinating conversation. I appreciate uh, the research that you're doing and, and sharing some of the highlights with us. Sure, it was great chatting to you. That was Dr. Eloise Marais from University College London. For a link to some of her recent articles on the impacts of space tourism on air pollution, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, those of you who have been listening this summer know about the Smart Prosperity Podcast Summertime Book Club. I've been asking each of our guests what they're reading this summer. Here is what Dr. Patel said. The book is called Leadership Moments from NASA, uh, Achieving the Impossible. Uh, And so this book is actually by Dr. Dave Williams. Uh, He is a retired Canadian astronaut um, and also by Elizabeth Howell. And here is what Dr. Eloise Marais had to share. Operation Paperclip, um, which is about the secret intelligence program um, that was um, established in the U.S. after World War II. Now, space tourism is a hot topic just now, but there's much more than that happening in the green economy over the past couple of weeks. To recap everything else, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat. Mike is a senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and here he is with five other things happening in the green economy this week. Thanks, Eric. Here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, a crippling drought continues to hit the prairies and other parts of Canada, with Manitoba suffering as dry as July on record. Crop yields are expected to be dramatically lower, and cattle farmers are struggling to find feed. The drought is also leading to water shortages across Western Canada. Number two, the global economic recovery from COVID-19 will drive greenhouse gas emissions to record highs, according to a new report from the International Energy Agency. It finds that only 2% of government stimulus funding around the world has been targeted at clean energy, much lower than what is needed to move towards net zero by 2050. Number three, the Quebec government has rejected a new liquefied natural gas facility that would carry natural gas from Western Canada for shipping to international markets. The decision cited the project's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. The International Energy Agency has warned that there can be no new investments in fossil fuel projects if the world is to hit its climate goals. Number four, major pension plans and institutional investors, including the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, have committed $7 billion to Brookfield Asset Management's new Global Transition Fund, making it the largest pool of private money aimed at accelerating the shift to a green economy. 
Number five, environment ministers from 51 countries, including Canada, met in London for a meeting ahead of the annual UN climate conference in November. Countries are still not in agreement on the actions needed to hit global climate goals, with China and India opposing the outright elimination of coal plants. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thank you, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for this episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. If you liked it, please share it with your colleagues and friends. Listeners is what keeps this nonprofit podcast in business. If you have feedback or questions, my email and social media info is at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, a reminder that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like having smart and evidence-based conversations. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out August 18th.